Well, today we are joining, um, as we know now, the churches um, throughout the United States and I think to some degree around the world. And, and other churches may do this on other Sundays, but um, uh, it is a focus this month, at least, um, on this National Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. So appropriate to reach back in our study of the seven churches of the book of Revelation and pick up the second church, the church of Smyrna, which speaks to us about the reality of the suffering church. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2. <clears throat> we left off with uh, Philadelphia, but we're, we skipped over this so that we could deal with it now. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. Here's God's word. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what... You are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison and you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. <clears throat> now, to um, understand um, what the, um, see if I can get this to work, uh, to understand what the Christians in the first century in Smyrna were facing, I need to tell you a little bit about Smyrna itself. Uh, Smyrna um, <clears throat> claimed to be the first city in Asia, both for beauty and size. Uh, this, this city still exists in modern-day Turkey under the name of Izmir. It's located on the coast of the Aegean Sea. If Ephesus was tied to Rome, Smyrna even more so. They had a reputation for rabid patriotic loyalty to the emperor and to the Roman Empire. They had been granted the sole privilege of erecting a temple to the Emperor Tiberius, which was a matter of huge pride to them. If Ephesus was all about the cult of Diana, the, uh, uh, the, the Smyrnans were all about uh, fanatic loyalty uh, to the Emperor of Rome. So the point is that Smyrna was a center of emperor worship, which made it a very dangerous place for Christians. Uh, at the temple... Um, all of the good Schmernians were expected to stop by from time to time and burn a little incense in front of a bust of the emperor. Uh, offer a little perfunctory worship um, to, to Caesar. And, and nobody had a problem with that. It didn't mean very much to them. Except the Christians. For them, it was rank idolatry. It had nothing to do with their relationship with Rome. Had it everything to do with their relationship with Jesus. 
If you were a Christian in Smyrna and were not willing to bow the head to the emperor in Rome, you were regarded as unpatriotic. You were a marked man or woman and looked upon with deep suspicion as a threat to the state. Let me tell you the story about Polycarp. Polycarp is considered one of the fathers of the church and was a pupil of the Apostle John. It's very likely that he was a bishop or elder in the church of Smyrna during this period. And it happens that his story was very carefully recorded. It was the 22nd of February in probably the year about A.D. 156. The venerable bishop, who had fled from the city at the entreaty of his congregation, was tracked down in his hiding place. He made no attempt to flee. Instead, he offered food and drink to his captors and asked permission uh, to retire for prayer, which he did for two hours. (laughs) Uh, As they drove him into the city, the officer in charge urged him to recant. What harm can it do, he said, to sacrifice to the emperor? Polycarp refused. On arrival, he was brought before the proconsul at the city amphitheater who addressed him and said, Have respect to your old age, swear by the image of Caesar, and again, swear and I will release you, revile the Christ. To which Polycarp replied, Eighty and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul persisted. Swear by the image of Caesar, I have beasts that can be brought. If you do not change your mind, I will throw them to you. Bid them be brought, replied the bishop. As you despise the beast, unless you change your mind, I will have you destroyed by fire. But the old bishop was implacable. He could not be made to to recant his faith, to break the first and second commandments, to deny his Savior, and swear to false gods. And he perished in the flame and by dagger thrust. The fact of the matter is that throughout the ages, the world around, whenever the church has been loyal and faithful to the calling to confess Christ, alone as the true and living God and loyal to his gospel and to his law, sooner or later they find themselves in tension with the authorities and powers of the state, which inevitably comes to regard Christianity as a potential problem and a rival. This is not simply academic. This is not simply a thing of the past. Nationalistic states... Dictator states, fascist states, communist states, Islamic, Hindu states always look upon Christians as a threat to their control, their power, their rule, their stability, their own religion, and their own agenda. And you should know also that never in the history of the church, even in the early years, has there been anything close to the amount of persecution, the degree of persecution that the Church of Christ is experiencing today around the world. It is unprecedented. And you've heard a little bit about it. Christians are faced with this sort of thing down to this very day. Please remember that only two years ago, I think, 
a man by the name of Andrew Brunson, an American citizen and the pastor of the Izmir Resurrection Church, modern-day Smyrna, in Turkey, sat in a prison cell for over a year, accused by the pro-Islamic president of Turkey, Erdogan, of being an enemy sympathizer because he simply welcomed Kurdish men and women to his church to hear the gospel. Every Christian church in Turkey today has a government informant sitting in the worship service. Believers in Smyrna had another problem, too. The Jews throughout the Roman Empire had actually been granted some religious protections. They were considered a religio licita, a, a, a legal religion. Uh, and so they were protected from these things. The Christians, however, having been rejected by the Jews and thrown out of the synagogues, had lost that protection and were not excused from emperor worship, as were the Jews. Judaism, uh, which should have been a close, supportive friend to the infant church, became a dangerous and bitter enemy together with Rome. The church of Smyrna had no friend but Christ. Moreover, we're told about their poverty. I know your tribulation and your poverty, says the Lord. Perhaps they were fired from their jobs when they were converted or discriminated against and had a hard time finding employment. Christians in China will often find it very difficult for their sons and daughters to get into good universities because of their confession. That's a fact. Likewise, um, we're told that um, the church was drawn from, uh, in large part from, or very likely were drawn in large part from the very poorest folk in the city. And that would not be unusual for poverty has very often been a part of following Christ. The vast majority of Christians in the world today are quite poor. Uh, God does remind them that in fact they're rich, citizens of heaven, but as far as the world was concerned, they were poor. But it gets worse. For Jesus informs them in verse 10 that they're about to have there's further suffering in, in, in store for them. Some of them, in fact, will be thrown into prison and tested to the point of death. Perhaps he was thinking of Polycarp, among others. Well, now our Lord Jesus includes this church of Smyrna and suffering and um, its tribulations uh, among the seven representative churches here in the book of Revelation to remind us, what's the purpose of this being in Scripture? To remind us that tribulation and persecution has always been part of following Christ. We are actually said to share in the sufferings of Christ when we suffer for the sake of our allegiance to his name. We're honored to suffer for Jesus. It's part of our identity. It's always appropriate and important for us to pray for our brothers and sisters who are suffering greatly. Uh, we suffer with them. They are our brothers and sisters in a large part of the body of Christ. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, I've always tried to be very cautious about predicting or even talking a lot about some sort of coming surge of persecution against Christians in the United States. We are not in any significant matter, persecuted. And I think we need to be careful about that sort of talk. It can be self-defeating, it can be unhelpful. That said, we should not be surprised should our church 
uh, experience some measure of resistance and even suffering at some point. In fact, it would really be more surprising if we don't. And here's the reason why. The Judeo-Christian consensus that was once the bedrock of the Western world um, that established a general moral consensus that undergirds our courts and our legal system and our, the foundation of our government is crumbling, is changing. Now, the educational elite, the media, much of the government has thrown off the mooring lines and we are truly drifting farther and farther away from any sort of Christian foundation. Not because these people are essentially evil in everything they do. They just have a different vision. It's not a Christian vision. Christian values are, are not looked upon with universal approval. Uh, in fact, a growing number of people are, are, are not only ignorant of Christianity, but they're even somewhat hostile to it, feeling as it to be a significant source of bigotry and narrowness and division and, and warfare. The divisions that our country are, is experiencing right now, this is underneath some of that. That sort of thinking sets the possibility of conflict between the church and state. It's very important for us to understand this point. Please hear this carefully. That if a person is not committed to a faithful, biblical understanding of Christianity, a historic understanding of Christianity, if your heart is not committed and sold out and captive to Christ and to his word as truth, then why shouldn't women serve as ministers and elders? Why in the world shouldn't homosexuals be allowed to marry together and adopt children? Why not? Why shouldn't married couples live together and have children? Why shouldn't inconvenient babies be aborted? That sounds like a good idea. Why shouldn't? Why shouldn't expensive, pain-ridden old folks be euthanized? Or children, as they're doing today in the Netherlands. If you don't believe the Bible, there is very good reason, very little reason, to believe not to believe, not to, believe to do any of those things. Sorry, I'm not making that clear. You understand what I'm saying. If you don't believe those things, why not, in other words? And, and so the world says to us, we just don't understand you people anymore. You are so unreasonable. You're irrational. You're heartless. You're not thinking straight. You're undemocratic. Why can't you compromise a little? Why can't you throw a little incense to satisfy the gods of modernity? Why do you have to be so narrow and mean-spirited and unscientific? And some Christians are tempted to say, well, why indeed? Why should we suffer? Why should we be ostracized? And why should people look down their nose at us? Why should we be considered bigots? And why should we fight against the changing times? Let's be a little more flexible. Let's be a little more accommodating. And there are many churches that have done that. Whole denominations. And that's, and, but it, you see, if, you, if we argue that way, uh, if, they, if they argued that way in the first century church, God would not have ever written this letter to the church of Smyrna. And the apostle John would have never been exiled on the, the island of Patmos. And Polycarp could have lived his life out in peace. Why insist 
on the Ten Commandments? Why not nine or eight or six? Why such a big fuss about idolatry or the Lord's Day or the sanctity of truth or marriage or, or, or life? And make everybody just mad at us. Well, the answer is because we love and fear God more than men. And because the world can't offer us a crown of life, but only of death and despair. It's a bankrupt philosophy that drives it. Truthfully, it's just not very far-fetched to think how persecution might reach even this church. Uh, Right now, the church enjoys uh, protections, but they're being challenged. The Religious Freedom Act Uh, which protects religious speech, will likely be changed uh, if there's a change of administration. Even in the courts, we're seeing an erosive movement towards limiting what was once considered sacred rights of personal religious conscience, and it's the birthright of this country. And so it's not hard to imagine how our membership and attendance might begin to shrink a little because of our unpopular theology and people just drifting away to other churches that have compromised or been silenced on controversial issues? Why should we belong to this narrow little Orthodox Presbyterian church? These people have such a problem. And then the state of New Jersey, or the borough of Pittsgrove and Elmer, becomes righteously incensed by our stand regarding gay rights or gay marriage or the failure to be properly pluralistic with regard to who we allow to preach and, and stand in our pulpit and lead our church and our efforts to evangelize the community, for example. And so they, they determined to remove our tax-exempt status. So now the church has to pay thousands and thousands of dollars in taxes every year on our properties. And the financial pressure makes it hard for the now diminished congregation to keep the building in, in good order. And so... Um, things sort of fall apart a little bit. And then an unfriendly building inspector walks in and declares the building to be unsafe and takes away the certificate of occupancy. And now we have no place to worship, so we meet in private homes, but the neighbors complain because of our cars and noise. Now look, I'm not not spinning out that scenario to be sensational or to make some sort of doomsday prediction. I I am not. I simply want us to tell that to you Because I want us to understand that the sort of persecution that Christians experience the world around is not so alien or not something that we should suppose could never happen here. Now, that's that's the first thing to understand. I want to move on to to the second thing. But the first being how that our faith, our confession with Christ puts us at odds with a with an um, ascendant, secular, humanistic, rationalistic philosophy of the world in which we're living. Um, I hope this never happens here. Uh, it, it may very well never happen here. Uh, I'm not sure it will ever happen here. But we should never regard ourselves in this blessed country to be excused or exempt from uh, the common experience of the Church of Jesus Christ or beyond the devil in his machinations and his hatred of the Church. Now, here's the second thing to understand. The first being that how we are at odds with, with the world in much deeper ways than you may suppose. Um, here's the second thing. That our situation here in this age, in this place, is an anomaly. 
That means that our church, uh, the fact that our church is protected and enjoys peace is, is, excuse me, is not the norm, it's the exception. No country in the world that I'm aware of has ever experienced such a sustained period of relatively unchallenged religious peace and tranquility as the Christian church in the United States. That's a historic fact. It's unusual. It's historically unusual. So this tribulation that our Lord speaks about us here in Revelation 2 should, not be, should be received, I think, with, with sober thoughtfulness. Are we willing to stand for our right to hold to the historic, reformed, and biblical faith? Uh, the right of the church to speak openly for Christ, and not just within the walls of the church. No one's going to bother us if we just keep it all right in here and sort of quiet, and then, you know, when we go outside, it's zip. No one will care about that, at least not very quickly. But what about speaking uh, outside the church? What about speaking at the Boardwalk Chapel or the Cowtom Saturday Market, which the church used to do years ago? Well, um, thank God that this text uh, speaks um, not only of, um, not only of the, the suffering of the church, but also the sufficiency of Christ. Uh, the Lord goes on to speak of his suffering, talking about the suffering church, uh, to um, the hope, our joy, and our peace, and uh, the rest that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but I'm actually going to stop right now. I'm not going to preach the rest of this sermon because I think we have enough right here. And we'll, I want to take a few extra minutes to pray and then we'll pick up with Smyrna and the sufficiency of Christ uh, next Lord's Day evening. So let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you that you are the sovereign Lord, that you order all things and you have ordered a glorious thing for us in this nation. We have enjoyed such peace and such protection and such blessing. But Lord, we know that things we believe are not at all what the natural man believes. And we know that more and more there is a growing a number of people who, who see themselves at odds with us. And Lord, that's the way it is the world around. And we, we pray that you would, you would stanch that change and you would sustain this this great freedom and this great blessing of gospel peace that we enjoy and the peace to share your word freely. Lord, we know that our brothers and sisters in other lands are not free to do this sort of thing. They are not free to sing loud. They are not free to meet easily. They are not free to share with others without fear of retribution. And so, Lord, we do pray for them. And we ask your grace to them and for ourselves also that we would be bold and wise and uh, we commit ourselves to you. And in Jesus' name, amen. amen.